Welcome to the last Sunday of the year at First City Church. Uh, Happy New Year. In addition to this being the last Sunday we're gathering in 2018, it is also our final sermon in our series on the book of First John. And for those of you who are less familiar with me, my name is Paul Gardner. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here. Now, one of the things you may know me, those of you who are familiar with me, well, because I I do like to talk about it from time to time, is that I played college football. Back back in the 1990s, I played center. I, I was the guy who snapped the ball to the quarterback. And on fifth Sundays, I like to use pictures, so I brought a picture of me with my football team. Hopefully you can see that. If you can see that picture, what you'll notice is that I had a little more athletic frame. I'm, the, I'm number 74, just in case you didn't know. I had a little more athletic frame and a lot more hair. <laughs> I played for the now-closed Dana College. We were, we were the Vikings, Now, those of you familiar with athletics know that before every game, the head coach gives a pep talk or a a motivational speech to the players. And in that speech, a a football coach might say things like, linemen, make sure you keep your hands up after the ball is snapped. Receivers, make sure you run your routes a few yards deeper than normal because of the coverage the defense is in. Quarterbacks. Hold on to the ball a second or two longer to free up your receivers. Defense, watch, watch the way the fullback goes when the ball is snapped because they tend to give away the direction the play is headed. And then the speech would conclude with a call to beat the Warriors or beat the Bulldogs or beat the Tigers. Up to that point, the coach had not said anything about beating the team we were playing. He had provided guidance on how to win, but he had not actually used the words, let's go win. But ultimately, this is the point of what he had said previously. He realized there were two potential outcomes for the game we were about to play. We could win or we could lose. The point of the pep talk was not for receivers to run deep routes or for the linemen to keep their hands up. The point of what he said was to win. Now, some of you might argue that there is more than one outcome to a sporting event. And that the ultimate outcome isn't about winning. Just remember, I didn't go to a Christian university. And I'm still not so sure the point of a sporting event isn't to win. (laughs) So we've taken a number of months to work through the letter of 1 John. And the apostle has said much about how we are to live as Christians. He is focused on how people are to obey God's commandments. He has discussed over and over again how we are to love one another. We're to love brothers and sisters in Christ. He has talked about how we are to avoid false teachers. And then after five chapters of material, he finishes with a line that doesn't seem like it fits with the rest of the letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, quick note, since there are so many little children in here, little children, John is, John is not saying little children, meaning individuals less than five years old. John is affectionately referring to adults who are following Christ. John has turned coach. 
And he provides a punch to the letter. A memorable last statement to summarize the point of what had been said previously. If you remember, John is writing to people involved in an ugly church split. People have wandered from the faith and rejected Christ as Lord. And so John recognizes there are two potential outcomes to how people live. Worship of the true God or worship some false God. The point of this letter is that John's hearers would worship the true God. This is the point of what was said previously. Worship the true God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So our big idea this morning is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. To unpack this big idea, we're going to discuss three questions. What is idolatry? What is the power underlying idolatry? And what is the solution to idolatry? So let's begin with the question, what is idolatry? Some of you may recall our friend, Pastor Dusty White, from Cormdale, he briefly opened up the Ten Commandments a couple weeks ago, and he touched on idolatry. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, we read, You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. Now, when we think about people having other gods, or people having idols, we often think of tribal-type people. People who have an object of wood or an object of clay or an item of some precious metal that they have formed into an image they now worship. But taking an object of wood or clay or some precious metal, that is not what John is referring to. The people who left the church are not guilty of worshiping such objects. They have embraced false teaching. And they are worshiping something other than God or less than God. Listen to Pastor Tim Keller explain idolatry this way. When most people think of idols, they have in mind literal statues or the next pop star anointed by Simon Cowell. Now those familiar with the show American Idol pre-2011 know what Keller is referring to. Yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places in the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, These men have set up their idols in their hearts. Like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security safety, and fulfillment, if we attain them. Everyone is prone to idolatry, not just tribal people, not just religious people. Some things other than God or less than God, Keller tells us, often good things become ultimate things. 
Like I said, it's a fifth Sunday, and I like to use pictures on it fifth Sunday. So with the children present in the room, I try to include more pictures. So I have pictures of some things, some very good things, and I want to ask the question, can this be an ultimate thing? So our first picture is a picture of a gym or brings to mind things like working out. Can we make physical fitness or the pursuit of overall health, can we make that an idol? Yes. Next picture, we have, a, we have a picture of a large van. Now, I'm sure most of you aren't idolizing a large van, <laughs> unless you're driving an old one like ours. Uh, but, but the point is possessions, material possessions. There's some type of car, some type of truck, or some type of house, a particular type of house that we are prone to idolize, prone to attaining. Material possessions can very much become ultimate things. What about work? Can success at work or getting affirmation at work or achieving a particular status at work, can that be an object of worship? Absolutely. And what about a picture of people hanging out? Can we make relationships? Maybe a friendship. Maybe the pursuit of a dating relationship. Or maybe even to to work towards marriage. Can that be an ultimate thing? Absolutely. So how do we know when we've crossed the line from rightly valuing something, because these are good things, to deifying that thing, to making it a God thing? The Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, provides some insight. To whom... Will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place if one cries to it, It does not answer or save him from his trouble. Isaiah is saying when we idolize something, we make it equal to God. We carry it. We invest significant resources into it. We bow down to it. We cry to it rather than to the Lord when we're experiencing trial and pain. And when we don't have access to it, we become angry or anxious or depressed. It defines our emotions. We look to it to save us. It is what we worship, and we reject proper worship of the Lord. So let's take food. Food is something many idolize, and I would include myself in this category. We are prone to reject proper worship and stewardship spending more resources than we should on fast food or elegant food or nutritious food. We reject caring for our bodies, knowing, knowingly eating food that's bad for us. We reject resting in the Lord. We become anxious about eating good food. We eat when we're happy. We eat when we're sad. We eat when we're bored. Some are enslaved to food with food addictions. Many neglect the spiritual discipline of fasting 
because we won't give food up. We go to food for comfort. As Isaiah says, we cry to it. Food is a very good thing, but we can make it into a God thing. What, what some things do you make into God things? Achieving affirmation? Obtaining a particular appearance? Maybe it's something like making sure your rights are expressed and heard. Or making sure your kids have a particular type of education. Maybe you idolize the type of community you're in. What idols are you prone to worship? What do you cry to? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So, so what is the power underlying idolatry? Well, in 1 John 5, 18 through 21, the passage we're in, John is making clear there are two types of people. People who pursue worship of idols and people who do not. If you have your Bibles open, you see John references the evil one twice. The evil one draws people into worshiping something other than God or less than God. In Genesis chapter 3, where the Bible introduces the evil one, the evil one draws a woman named Eve to reject the command God had given her to not eat of the tree of good and evil. Rather than follow God, pursuit of this forbidden fruit becomes ultimate. Now, what did the evil one do to draw her into this? Did the evil one physically oppress and coerce her? No. The evil one appealed to her mind, questioning God's word questioning God's character. Satan challenged her thinking. You think God is good? You think you're satisfied with what he's given you? But you'll be more satisfied if you eat the fruit. It, not him, will bring ultimate satisfaction. This is the power of the evil one. God God had placed Eve in a garden filled with abundant fruit. There was plenty, and Eve was free in so many ways to enjoy the garden. But he did provide limitations. The evil one convinces her, limitations constrict her. What God had given her, it was not enough. Eve needed more. To have ultimate satisfaction, she needed the forbidden fruit at the expense of obeying the Lord. The evil one draws up false parameters, drawing us into thinking they will provide ultimate satisfaction. So let's look at another idol prevalent in our culture. Kids. Parents, if you've, if you've wandered off for a minute, let me, let me bring you back, and let me speak directly to you for a moment. Look at your kids. And no, they are a very good thing. They are a blessing. And they can also be an idol. And one of the ways, one of the ways we can idolize our children, I was listening to, a, to a, a secular podcast on this yesterday, is idolizing, preventing them from experiencing emotional pain. 
We rescue them when they are struggling in school. We rescue them when they're struggling with relationships or or we rescue them making sure they have opportunities or possessions or this last week Christmas gifts that other kids have, whatever the cost may be for us. We don't deprive them of whatever they want to eat whenever they want to eat it. We talk to them about the Enneagram and their story and our faults, but we avoid conversations addressing their sin. We avoid disciplining them because that would cause too much pain. We enable them to make poor choices with how they spend their time or who they spend their time with or what they spend their time on. Parents, in the Lord, preventing or rescuing your child from experiencing any and all emotional pain is a false parameter that is not your responsibility. It will not bring ultimate satisfaction to you or your child. The responsibility God has given you is discipling them in how they handle emotional pain. In verse 18, John references the evil one. The evil one touching you, a form of attack. In verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John is stating what the Apostle Paul states in the book of 2 Corinthians. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we read of attack, or the whole world lying under the power of the evil one, we think physical battles, or physical oppression. But if the scriptures are right, the evil one does not so much attack physical bodies, but rather our minds. The evil one exerts force by darkening and dimming thoughts. The evil one blinds minds to the truth. The evil one convinces the good gifts God has provided and the limitations and parameters to use those gifts. It is not enough. It does not bring ultimate satisfaction. Why is John so concerned about people in the church keeping themselves from idols? Because they often don't. In pursuit of idols, it is a threat to spiritual vitality. And it is a threat to the health of the church. Making an outcome for your child ultimate, it is a threat. Making the ideal appearance ultimate, it is a threat pursuit of affirmation or success or comfort, it is a threat. In eating the fruit, Eve embraced thinking that God is withholding something she ultimately needed to be satisfied. For us, our pursuit of idols, we embrace thinking what God has provided is not enough. Embracing idolatry is not so much thinking God doesn't exist. It is thinking we need something other than God to bring ultimate satisfaction. But this is a farce. In the passage we drew earlier in the book of Isaiah, the prophet said, if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his troubles. 
idols will not bring ultimate satisfaction. They may satisfy for a while. That's why we pursue them. But they will not save us. They will let us down. So our our pursuit of relational intimacy, our pursuit of a particular type of relationship, it can be a good thing, but it will ultimately let you down. Our pursuit of comfort, it can be an okay thing, but it will ultimately let us down. Our pursuit of an ideal outcome or, or success can be a very good thing, but it will let us down. Your idol, you will place your hope in it. It will form you, it will shape you, and it will imprison you, and it will let you down. So what, what's, what is the solution? If you are in Christ, the gospel has freed you from the power of idolatry and the power of the evil one. The gospel has changed you and transformed you and shaped you into something different. You have been given much. Throughout this letter, John has been reminding us of the life we have in Christ. Remember, he reigns in your hearts. Remember, he has given you life. Remember, he loved you first before you loved him. He initiated, not because of anything you did. He loved you. And so at the end of the letter, John doesn't state anything new. He simply restates what has been said, perhaps with greater sharpness, in three statements that begin. Each of them begins with, we know that. He appeals, he appeals to our thinking, reminding us of the freedom we've been given in the gospel. Verse 18 We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There may be people who do not reject sin. There may be people who want to sin. But as people who have been born of God, we do not keep on sinning. As John said, it's it's not that we never sin. But we repent of our idols. We reject pursuing idols. We don't want idols and sin to have sway and influence in our lives. And Jesus, the one born of God, he protects us. Because of what he has done, we are free from experiencing guilt and shame and punishment. In this sense, the evil one can't touch you and never can. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Darkened thoughts, dim thoughts, poor thinking, we no longer lie under the power of the evil one. You are from God. His lies have been exposed. Good health, it does not bring ultimate satisfaction. Your success, it does not bring ultimate satisfaction. You're no longer imprisoned to such thinking. He has set you free. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. We know Jesus Christ is God's Son. 
we know God has given us his spirit. And we know he's given us understanding so that we would know who Christ is. Only Jesus Christ is to be upheld as a God thing. We know he is the true God. And unlike our idols, Jesus has saved us. Jesus has given us life. So in one sense, the gospel sets us free. But John is saying many are prone to live as though they are not free. They are prone to live under the lie, God is not sufficient. So in another sense, embracing what we know is true, living in light of that reality, is the solution to idolatry. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie or maybe read the book Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. But it is rich with biblical metaphor. The majority of the the story takes place in a prison over many years. A couple of the primary characters, when they're released from prison after 40, 50 years, they struggle to understand what it means that they are free. In, In one scene, there's a man named Red He treats his supervisor like his prison guard, asking if he can do some menial task like go to the bathroom. See, Red knew he had been declared free by a parole board, but he didn't know how to live in light of that freedom. Christians, children of God, you've been set free. We've been set free from the power and the lies of the evil one. The evil one cannot touch us, and he never will be able to. We've been given ultimate satisfaction, more than we could ever ask or need in Christ. Now live in light of that freedom. This is what John is saying to us. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't let them be a threat to your spiritual vitality or the health of the church. Repent of them, reject them, and do not worship them. They will let you down. Worship Christ. He has given you life. He has set you free. This is the life we have in him.